0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Falcon 9 is Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy Podcast. It's April 12th. And 60 years ago today, Yuri Gagarin became the first human to fly atop a rocket into space. So it's fitting, and as we had previously mentioned, that we launch a new 10-part series called Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell, SpaceQ's associate editor. The series will air every other week in between our regular episodes. Let's get started on this new and exciting series.
1: Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a SpaceQ podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. April 12th is a special day in the space business. It's the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's historic human spaceflight in 1961. In Episode 1, we'd like to take you through a historical journey, telling you the differences between then and now. Our guest today is Maxime Poutot. Maxime is Principal Advisor at EuroConsult. Since joining EuroConsult in 2012, Maxime manages consulting and research assignments related to space industry activities such as launch and manufacturing. Hello, Maxime. Hi, Elizabeth. All right, let's begin with our questions. And so, as you well know, April 12th is, as I said, the 60th anniversary of the Garence mission. So let's go back to that year when the satellite industry was really in its infancy. What kinds of satellites and rockets were launching in that era, the 1950s and 1960s?
2: Well, we were in the very early days of, um, of the launch and the, and the satellite industry. And back then, we were mainly la- launching satellites uh, in the context of the Cold War. So for national security uh, missions, and also for exploration, and, and, and soon for manned spaceflight. And I remember that, that day, the, um, there were very, very basic satellites. Like the technology was it's in very infancy stage.
1: When you say infancy stage, are you talking about, for example, the cameras, right, which were more like TV scanners? Oh yeah,
2: and remember that uh, until um, the late uh, 70s um, for remote sensing um, the the downlink capacity of satellite was so limited that um, the images were returned under uh, a film uh, within within a capsule under parachute. So satellite uh, lifetime back then was very limited by uh, the length of the film uh, capacity.
1: (laughs) And what about the electronics? What kind of electronics were going up back then?
2: Well, uh, an, uh, an example which is uh, uh, often used is the fact that as of today your smartphone and even your bachelor cal- calculator is even more power- powerful than the computer of the Lunar Exploration Module that landed uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. So it's again, very, very infancy, infancy stage making that the success of this mission uh, even more impressive.
1: And I think another thing that we should remember quickly, because this is a commercial-focused podcast, is that a lot of those early satellites had basically government backing to them. Am I correct in that?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, every every uh, satellite uh, project has roots within government, either as a customer, as a, a, su- a supporter or within financing, or even as a manufacturer or launcher. Uh, at that time, uh, everything was government.
1: And these were just to be clear about this very large satellites for the most part too, right? So it would have been a larger launching cost compared with today, even.
2: I would say that the price was, was at some point not even a, a topic because the customer, uh, the government, was a, was its own customer, and. Performances or even time were the most important metrics, um, being the first on the moon or being the first to land a probe on either Mars or Venus or even ensuring um, national security with specific specific information was, uh, was priceless and that's why uh, budgets were flowing a lot, a lot more than today actually.
1: Yes, the political environment was quite different as you're pointing out. Exactly. So um, when was it that private companies started to have more involvement in the launching business?
2: Well, every um, the, the start of the um, of the commercial uh, space activities can be uh, related with um, the growth of satellite uh, TV broadcasting uh, from geosatellite, and uh, around the, the early eighties, um, and which quickly become the bread and butter of uh, of the industry. Satellite was actually a satellite in geo, where actually a very good compromise to, um, to flow the signal over um, either a country or even a region. And, and back then, it was a very convenient um, uh, use and with a lot of commercial uh, application and customers. Of course, this is slightly changing, but uh, it has been really the, the core business of, of the industry.
1: Interesting, and then why was it that private companies were more interested in the TV business than, say, governments?
2: Well, it, um, so uh, at the very beginning, remember that Intelsat uh, was a non uh, was an international organization, and as soon as uh, markets were developing, there were uh, political uh, pressure to uh, for the government to let it go to investor, uh, as it was a commercial uh, driven activity where. where it was understood that government uh, had no roles in such, uh, in such market and, and private investor on the market would better decide um, uh, on market orientation, allowing, uh, enabling the government to focus um, on sovereign aspect, either exploration or remote sensing or science.
1: And can we talk a little bit, too, about the uh, the American side, uh, especially with the uh, the shuttle missions, because we had shuttles that were launching some of these larger satellites in the early 1980s, and then, of course, the Challenger incident happened, and that changed um, launching to some extent, right? There were more companies that were starting to get involved in launching around that era. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened?
2: Yes, indeed. The The US government uh, at the end of the Apollo program uh, thought that a shuttle, uh, the, the space shuttle, would replace every launch capacity. And that's why um, a lot of launcher programs were discontinued. Um, After, uh, before realizing that actually the shuttle was a quite dangerous launcher and not even reaching expectation in terms of launch rate, performances, price, and safety, Um, it it was it it became the coffin of uh, 14 uh, astronauts um, um, at the end of the day. So. People and government with a uh, launch capacity, so room of opportunities. That's why Iron um, Space entered the market and became um, the main player on the commercial launch business, launching uh, most of the GeoComsat satellite. And uh, slowly after the end of the Cold War, with Russia having so much launch capability available, they started to sell both uh, rockets, like Proton, or um, rocket engines, such as RD 180. To companies like, um, like Lockheed Martin to be used on Atlas V rockets. So everything started uh, around the, uh, the 80s with a big push in the 90s.
1: It's interesting because I'm thinking about how some of the big uh, rocket players today, we're talking places like uh, ULA, Ariane Space, and a number of the Russian programs, they kind of came out of that era and they're still going on. So it's sort of interesting how that market opportunity has helped them for these last few years, right?
2: And, and this is uh, it can be explained um, easily. Launch uh, itself is the most intensive uh, capital um, um, area in the industry um, and the most risky, and today is still the least profitable. So, when you have uh, the opportunity to get access to a propulsion technology which is already being developed and uh, developed in a context where um price was not an issue uh, why would you not use such a lo- such perfect engine such as the the russian one and and considering um the time of investment and the risk uh, we were used to have launcher a program running for 10 20 25 years we, we are still using uh, rocket engines which have been designed to land a soviet a cosmonaut on the moon so so this is a uh, this is a, this is changing of course uh, with uh, with uh, people moving faster and bring more innovation but uh, we were still uh, running on a long very long term business
1: Okay, so I do want to talk more about uh, the satellite side in a moment, but just to keep going with the rockets. In these past 10 years or so, there have been even more innovations in rocket launches and rocket launching capabilities because there's been a proliferation of startups. I've talked to a lot of young companies that are thinking about newer rocket systems. Now, obviously, SpaceX is one of the more famous ones because they developed over time their self-landing rockets, but I know that there have been some other changes that are percolating in rocket technology of late. Um, So, of it more at the startup phase and some of it a little bit more mature and so what are some of the more recent changes that we're seeing in rocket launches to try to make them a little bit more cost effective because as you rightly pointed out there's still it's very difficult to turn a profit in that business still
2: Indeed. So, first of all, I would say uh, bringing the entrepreneur mindset into the launch business whether, is uh, mainly uh, clearly the first outcome. SpaceX validated the three things: that a private company could uh, develop a commercial launcher with partial but limited government support; that an, um, um, a billionaire or billionaire to be uh, could lead uh, and could accept such risk; and that the government could be uh, open to uh, outsource a lot of its um, procurement to such company. and with SpaceX validating this, um, so many entrepreneurs f- think uh, be- believe as of today that they can be the next SpaceX and come with different organ- uh, different innovation. To me, uh, the third most important one is the vertical integration in a sense that a company, startups as of today, they prefer to uh, ra- rather do uh, everything in-house rather than uh, procuring or assembling parts uh, supplied by uh, different vendors. Um, Vertical integration, uh, meaning that you, they are, uh, you provide not only launch, but also satellite uh, down to the uh, service is also a very new innovation and uh, is a direct uh, consequences of the change in the business. And on the technical side, I would say like uh, diversification of uh, launch supply. You can uh, either launch, uh, have a dedicated launch of 100 kilograms um, these days with a, a micro launcher up to uh, soon um, 60, uh, 60 metric tons in Leo thanks to uh, superior rockets. And this is uh, thanks to uh, very new technologies such, such as carbon fiber, um, a new engine. Uh, we see uh, a lot of developments going on on methane uh, propulsion technology. Uh, we uh, intended, uh, at least for SpaceX, to uh, be used in the Mars context, where you would uh, manufacture the fuel from Mars to return to the Earth. We'll see also smarter rockets, uh, which are uh, integrating more intelligence on board, such as flight term- automatic flight termination system. And, um, of course, reusability is definitely, uh, again, changer. it's not proven on the technical side and uh, it's it, uh, it it has to it has to be seen if it can actually uh, generate more revenue and, and create a more elastic demand but uh, this is uh, all of these parameters are actually uh, putting us in um in a, on a on a bullet train where the launch technology landscape in, in the coming uh, years will be uh, very much different than the one we used to know
1: so if I can put this very simply, what we're seeing is a market shift from, say, 60 years ago it was more like a government-funded type of launcher, um, heavier, um, not really very many efficiencies in terms of manufacturing. And then today, we're seeing a few innovations that might be changing the launching business to make it more profitable. And some ideas that you have identified include manufacturing efficiencies. We already have uh, types of uh, manufacturing as well that can be useful, such as uh, composites or 3D printing, and then efficiencies and propulsion, not to mention technological changes like the uh, self-landing that uh, SpaceX has been doing and a few others. And so it seems that we're having a market change in terms of how rockets are being approached. It's not just a thing for getting into space anymore. It's a thing more that is integrating different types of systems as efficiently as possible, right?
2: Definitely. One could say that we are actually uh, experiencing the same changes that um, the computer industry experienced in the late 90s.
1: And I would so agree very with that. exciting. <laughs> yes, it's very exciting. And actually, we should probably zoom back into the satellite market because some of these efficiencies with rockets, such as being able to do micro launchers, come with efficiencies in satellites too. So again, to zoom back, we used to have these. Satellites that would mostly be just a single entity, a single member of a satellite, right, going up into space, government funded for the most part or done by a big manufacturer. And then what we started to see around, I would say, the late 1990s, early 2000s, that's where we began to see the CubeSat come on board. So uh, just in case uh, people don't know what a CubeSat is, do you mind uh, quickly defining for our listeners what that is? Yeah,
2: sure. A, a CubeSat is, uh, is a standard where 1U uh, uh, um, f- uh, fits uh, 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter, And uh, behind um, this um, standard, um, the CubeSat triggered um, a very interesting ecosystem um, of standardized components, um, cheaper components, um, using commercial-on-the-shelf technology Um, even some which were not designed to be launched into space. And uh, on top of this, a very interesting business uh, are actually uh, uh, growing up these days, thanks to CubeSat. And everything started as uh, an academic project in California. And uh, it's now a very dynamic industry.
1: And it's very dynamic because of its lower cost, right? And does that mean that we have, for example, different kinds of people, different kinds of entities that are using these types of satellites as opposed to traditional government?
2: Oh yeah, cubesats are um, uh, no longer just a, uh, an academic uh, thing, uh, an academic project. Um, you can really uh, build a business out of cubesats, and I think you you need to link this to uh, also the development of uh, computer power, um, cloud technology, and of course artificial intelligence. Because thanks to the low price of cubesats, you can launch a lot of satellites collecting um, gigantic amount of data, but you need to process this data, and um, and that's where AI is helping.
1: And I think a couple of things, too, that are really interesting about CubeSats is that if the, the rocket is built for it, you can put a number of these things on a rocket at the same time. You can either have a collection of these CubeSats or you can have a small collection along with the larger uh, main satellite that's going into space. And so all of a sudden you could have maybe 50 or 80 satellites going into space at the same time instead of just one or two, right? And so- Yeah, it's really yeah. a
2: commodity. It's uh, yeah. standardized, it can be containerized. So you can swap cubesats CubeSat at the very last moment from one launcher to another. Um, it's, it's a container of, of the satellite industry.
1: And can we also talk about the rise of satellite constellations? So what those are and what kinds of industries you're targeting?
2: Yeah, so um, thanks to the decreasing cost uh, of uh, satellite technology and, and mainly smallsats, um, we see now more and more business moving towards constellation. And in our forecast, we believe that um, uh, 70% of the satellite to be launched in the next 10 years will be launched in constellation, meaning multiple satellites being launched or working together to either provide a global coverage or higher, higher revisits. And, and it changed everything because you can lower um, the your altitudes, uh, you can increase your coverage, and you can also reduce the latency of the signal you, you are forwarding, or reduce the latency of the image you are Capturing and and is definitely where the market is is heading in the coming in the next years.
1: I think that some of the more interesting applications of our constellations is well two things. The first one is that they're able to go into perhaps less serviced areas than in the past because if you're having a population that's for example in a more polar tilt, it's sometimes difficult to get a satellite up there depending on where you're launching from, obviously, and so. You can have these satellites moving into multiple types of orbits and again increasing the revisit rates where you can see down below. And then another thing too is this idea of redundancy right because it used to be um, there's been some incidents where satellites have gone up into space and then some sort of issue sidelined them and there wasn't a lot of backup available but now if you have a fleet of a few dozen or a few hundred at the very least you know that if one goes down you've got lots of backup right?
2: <laughs> Indeed it brings a lot of uh, benefits in terms of coverage and, uh, and resiliency so if your um, satellite uh, if one satellite asset is denied uh, either um, voluntarily and voluntarily you can you can um, rely on multiple other satellites to uh, to recoup this capacity. It's interesting, and it triggers actually a new business, Uh, so new risk, but also new business uh, such as debris removal uh, uh, business.
1: Exactly. So we have uh, applications such as Earth observation. I'm thinking of planet as uh, one example that does that, as well as uh, SpaceX's telecommunications. They have their Starlink set of satellites. Now, one thing that I want to mention briefly, too, is that there's a little bit of controversy with the more reflective, shall we say, uh, kinds of satellites. Can you describe what astronomers are worried about there?
2: Yeah, actually, astronomers are worried that at some point they will no longer be able to have a clear dark, dark sky and that in their field of view they will see uh, multiple satellites and creating um, lines because astronomers are working on long, uh, long exposure shots. So at some point they think that by launching too many satellites, we uh, the sky will no longer be observable, which is uh, worrying, um, I believe.
1: Yeah, because especially when you're talking about surveys, and so these are things that are trying to be looking across large reaches of the sky at once, it's typical to have difficulties with satellites crossing through. And if you're out there searching for, for example, asteroids, which is a very common facet of all sky surveys, if you have a satellite trail go through, it could destroy your view and make it more difficult to be searching out asteroids, which itself has implications too, because part of the reason we track asteroids is we want to figure out what their orbits are. Uh, People probably remember, for example, that the notorious uh, Apophis asteroid just passed by earth a few weeks ago and it's deemed not a threat anymore because there were telescopes that were able to track it and to see that at least within the next hundred years this orbit will not be a threat towards earth whereas before we had this worry so it's really really important to be able to see these asteroids and to continue to track them and I'm hoping that SpaceX and other companies can continue to find solutions yeah. to allow telescopes to keep operating because they do perform a service it may sound esoteric but Ultimately, they do perform a service that does have commercial benefit.
2: I believe that by reaching a such um, level of um, of maturity, the static industry um, has everything to win in engaging with other communities because its level of activity may. Interfere or jeopardize other the satellite industry and the and the launch industry have to talk to the uh, other industry and and to the and to the community to discuss about um, its merits, its sustainability, uh, its accountability, and um, just uh, to improve itself uh, with regard to uh, other industry like air transportation or um, the gas industry. This is very interesting. Well, really um, uh, moving into the uh, and leaving the infancy stage.
1: Exactly. It's more like a service stage now where we're doing everything from providing um, environment predictions to figuring out where gas and oil pipelines, how they're doing, you know, because the challenge with those, obviously, is they're so long and often in such remote areas, you can't be on every mile or every kilometer of these pipelines all the time. So to have an ability to remote sense, perhaps use the Internet of Things to be able to beam information out to the satellite and then back to the company monitoring, there's just a lot of ways that we can continue to use these and to proliferate uh, satellites, providing they're done wisely, of course. So um, we've gone over quite a few trends so far. So we talked about CubeSats, this idea of having smaller groups of satellites that are performing a number of essential services for people. We have rockets that are hopefully becoming a little bit more competitive in the future. It's not quite there yet, but we're seeing more innovation, and perhaps with another 15 or 20 years or so, we might start to see some changes there. We've also talked a little bit about the rise of smaller companies and space programs, smaller, um, smaller countries with space programs that are able to participate in space. And so what I'm seeing here, talking about these various trends, is moving away from the single launcher government back to more of a diversity. We have more diversity of players out there. And so what happens, what is happening in space now that we have so many different kinds of people, shall I say, or companies that are working within the space?
2: Well, it, uh, it opens a very interesting question. Um, the first uh, one will be business sustainability. As we see a lot of, of enthusiasm, a lot of capital flowing into uh, the industry and even the launch industry, as uh, at some point, this company will need to demonstrate that they can first make it uh, into orbit and then demonstrate uh, a profit. And so, Um, after the momentum uh, which is uh, really going on uh, we will see how things settle and uh, who are actually uh, surviving and and growing up versus who are actually uh, um, uh, disappearing and if you If you uh, bet that uh, Super Heavy Launcher uh, will be available at some point in the next 10 years, if you bet on the fact that uh, uh, you could launch a satellite within a few days, it actually opens a lot of uh, new applications we may see the development of space logistics uh, as, a, as, a, as a new growth opportunity where you will no longer launch your satellite alone, but you may just launch a payload, which could be... Uh, 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 in rendezvous with a space tug, and which will uh, tug um, the payload to its final orbit. You may see um, in-orbit refueling, in-orbit assembly, uh, which brings very interesting um, potential for a lot of people, not only for um, uh, human spaceflight and exploration, because you may no longer need uh, such large rocket like, like the SLS but also for national security, for uh, the telecommunication industry you could have antenna farms um, and without uh, considering the private aspect of uh, human space flight where uh, people could, could be um, going to private space station for, uh, for leisure or, or tourism.
1: And that's actually really interesting, too, because we've been focusing so much on satellites because we know that they provide a uh, return you know for the most part on uh, their services. But with a uh, human spaceflight, there still is that barrier to overcome, right? because usually when we launch people, it's at a considerable loss, although there are other reasons to do so, obviously, such as research, which can flow back. But yes, with the uh, rise of private um tourism, possibly in the next few years, that could be one way to finally start to generate revenue in at least a direct launch business, if not in uh, other ways. And so you have talked a few about a few industry trends that we might be seeing. And uh, of course, a large part of your job is trying to stay on top of these trends as well. And so can you talk a little bit about what you and also your consultant in the broader sense is working on these days to stay apprised of where space is going to be going next?
2: So, just a few words about Euroconsult. We are we are a um, um, market consultancy company uh, with a thirty years old legacy, working uh, for various type of customer in the industry, either government, investor, um, legacy, or new players. And we we monitor the satellite industry markets on a con- on a daily basis, and. Um, I would I've started at your eight years ago and I would say that time is getting faster and faster and it uh, it takes a lot of energy and time and resources to actually follow um, what has been what is going on and also to anticipate and forecast um, what could happen in in, uh, in the coming years and it, this is actually uh, making my job very exciting more than uh, it used to be a few years ago because uh, everything is much more uncertain but um, opportunities and and, um, and innovation are much more important.
1: Exactly, and with the launch business alone, it seems like there's something going. Sometimes it seems almost every day, let alone every week. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: used what, to, what be, you know, to, to be once a month. Yeah,
1: once a month, twice a month to be a big launch, then a couple smaller ones sprinkled, and now it's just constant. So <laughs> it's remember,
2: uh, five years ago, we were super excited when SpaceX landed the first booster, and now, like when they land the booster uh, on the on their drone ship, it. It just like um, it became like a regular thing, like a, almost yeah, people incredible. are not paying attention.
1: No, the the innovation is proceeding so quickly, and then there were innovations that we now take for granted, just as that, because it's incredible how we didn't even think 10, 15 years ago that it would be possible. And then now it just happens. And we just think, okay, well, now it's landed. Let's move on. You know? and, uh, <laughs> we should really take a moment just to say there's a lot of te- uh, technology and engineering that have gone into that uh, particular facet of uh, the, ra- the launch business. Well, um, for
2: 40 years, people uh, thought that um, landing to, uh, a human on Mars was uh, 40 years ahead. Maybe the, uh, this day the, the horizon is, is coming closer.
1: Yes, and actually, that's blending into what I wanted to ask you last, which is, what are you most looking forward to in the new space economy? Is it this expansion across the solar system to perhaps the moon, the Mars, other destinations, or somewhere else?
2: Well, personally, I've entered this industry to figure out if we could um, yeah, land a human on Mars uh, in the coming in the coming decades. So that's definitely the, the thing that I'm most excited about.
1: <laughs> I hope so as well. Okay, well, Maxime, thank you so much for sharing your time today.
2: Thank you very much, Elizabeth.
1: <laughs> that's great so uh, that again was uh, Doing Business in the Solar System that was episode one and this is Elizabeth Howell
0: well that's a wrap on this the first episode of Doing Business in the Solar System your feedback is very much appreciated please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca please rate this podcast on whatever platform you get it on as this will help others discover us